Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart, our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, the uh, introduction to the psalm says it's a uh, shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. So, uh, shigayon is a musical term whose meaning has been lost. So, in that sense, it's like every other musical term to me. Um, so, you know, we don't worry too much about that. Uh, but the psalm is concerning the words of Cush. So, words can be a weapon of violence. Uh, David writes, because someone in Saul's tribe had accused him of crimes that he had not committed with the goal of having David put to death. You know the Ninth Commandment, um, which prohibits bearing false witness against your neighbor. In Deuteronomy 19, it gives us the, um, the application of that in the law, where it says the the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Uh, from the eye of a eye for an eye formula, we see that um, bearing false witness is just another means of abuse or murder. Instead of me coming at you with a club, I tell a lie about you in order to get society to come at you with a club. And so God, God considers it the same sort of offense. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus, right? So the Pharisees, they were scared of the crowds because the crowds were on Jesus' side um, most of the time. And so they, they brought false accusations against them. They got the authorities against them. They got the crowds and the Romans to do what they were scared to do themselves. Now, if anyone is seeking to destroy your life or your livelihood by lying about you, by slandering you, then uh, Psalm 7 is what you should be praying or singing to God. Um, you know, false accusations are powerful. They're, they're very easy to use. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I know there's people that hate me and are happy to say false things about me. And it just takes the right words, and th- then you're locked in jail, or you've lost custody of your kids, or you've lost your job. Um, maybe, you know, someone even puts you to death. Uh, false accusations are, are powerful and dangerous. Um, and I don't know what you might be going through. We've had at least one incident in this church of a member who was accused of something that uh, was half true by uh, someone who was less righteous than him, and and you know he had to, uh, in order to try to get him fired. Um, we we know of of course lots of incidences of uh, divorce procedures where the less righteous spouse comes up with lies against the the more righteous spouse, um, and and perhaps if you're a visitor, if you're here, uh, and you're not usually here, maybe you're here because. God knew you needed this encouragement to deal with your own situation. So so in this psalm, we learn as we sing it and as we pray it to to take refuge from the accusations of our enemies by hiding in the justice of God. With that said, read along with me uh, in Psalm 7. You don't have to read out loud. I just, as I read... um, 
O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Here, David kind of transitions to praying for God to come and judge the world. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, and you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. So then David's going to turn to us and uh, encourage us that justice is never far away. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He is bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. So 1 through 5, we see at the beginning of the psalm that we are to ask God to rescue us from false accusations. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Where do you turn in trouble? Who is your refuge? Perhaps it's society, and, and by all means, like Paul, if you, have, you can appeal to the laws of the land for protection, you should do that. That's why we expect there to be multiple witnesses or multiple lines of evidence uh, when someone's accused. And we go read the, the story of David, though. We see in First and Second Samuel that that's not always possible. So uh, David had been chosen by God to be king. He'd been anointed by God to be king. And yet, while he was waited, he waited for that actually to happen, for it, to be able to take the throne. He faithfully served Saul, who was the king already. Which, um, as you know, how uh, you know switches between one dynasty to another tend to be violent. But David was not violent at all. He was faithful to Saul. He loved Saul. He was actually Saul's son-in-law. And uh, But Saul could see that David was blessed by God, and he, uh, he also sensed that God was giving the kingdom over to David. Now, Saul eventually used his army in order to hunt David down. And so, obviously, David could not appeal to society. He could not turn to the laws of the land and expect justice, because those were the very things that were slandering him. In many cases, the society or the powers that be are against us. We cannot take refuge in them, and so we have to look somewhere else. Now, one might instead look for take refuge in, your, in themselves. Um, you might try to use whatever means of power you have to get back at those who accuse you. 
Of course, you could physically attack them. And so, you know, the reasoning goes something like, well, if they're going to accuse me of being a murderer, I might as well get to murder somebody, which, of course, is a pretty, it's a very sinful thought. Um, but more socially acceptable is to use your tongue to attack your enemies, in which case you could become what the Bible calls a talebearer, and uh, you don't have to lie, just tell every bad thing that you know about your enemy, which is also a sinful way to act. Or you could see your enemy in trouble and refuse to help them. You see him broken down on the side of the road, and you say, well, you know, tough luck. Uh, you know, he's about to turn that form in incorrectly at work, and you say, well, you know, he should have known better. Or uh, he needs a recommendation for that adoption, and you say, well, I, I calls him as I sees him, and, you know, you uh, no grace. Uh, that is also a sinful option. The problem with taking refuge in yourself is that you are commanded to love your enemies. If you are not loving your enemy as yourself, then you're hating them, no matter what you choose to call it. Uh, David, the one who writes all these imprecatory prayers, and I would assume against Saul and uh, Saul's men, he's writing all these prayers for God to act in justice to, to bring down his wrath. Um, because he trusted in God, because his refuge was in God, he was able to love Saul, even in the midst of turning to God with those types of prayers. Twice, David had Saul standing, uh, had his Saul, had Saul unaware of him at night within striking distance and he, he walked away. He didn't, he didn't take advantage of it. Uh, even at Saul's death, he refused to take God's justice into his own hand. After Saul died, uh, 2 Samuel 1 tells us that David and his men mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul. So the same one that had chased him like a dog to kill him, uh, the same one that he had prayed for God's justice to fall on, David was able to weep for. Then David sings a song to Israel that includes these lines, You, daughter of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you with luxurious who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. David was able to love his enemy because he took refuge in the God of the universe. In whatever else we take refuge, uh, the Christian ought to always have God as his refuge, as his main refuge. Uh, If we appeal to society or to government, we're still doing it as part of our trust in God. Because Jesus lived a perfect life, he died to satisfy God's wrath, rose to vindicate us as the Father's accepted children, ascended to heaven to subdue the world, and poured out God's spirit of adoption upon us. Because he did all that, God is our hiding place. The one God in three persons is your refuge. Because you have Jesus' father as your father, because you've been adopted, you take refuge in the authority that behind every power in the universe. So the universe, the universe, of course, is, is unfathomably vast. Um, it's just the earth itself, which is tiny compared to the rest of the universe, um, is hard for us to wrap our minds around. And then it's, there's no way we could imagine the over one million earths that could fit inside the sun. We're, we're very familiar, comfortable with looking out at the stars at night, but we can't imagine the 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And 
Aside from that, we can't imagine the 100 billion galaxies that scientists uh, believe are in the the visible universe. So uh, all that power is from God. And then we we can take that down to an atomic scale inside us, and just inside your body, you know, the, the, the amount of action and motion is equally as vast within the 37 trillion cells in our bodies. Um, and, and the power that keeps that universe running is, is our refuge. Uh, you know, what artist designed all these stars? Who is more, God, God is more aware of every particle in the universe than you are aware of me standing in front of you. God made all that easier, and he sustains it easier than it is easy for you to hold up that lint on your, on your shoulder. It's, uh, it's just that easy for him. He's that powerful. And if you're in Christ, that author is your father. That father is on your side. And no matter how big and bad your adversaries seem, the father decides the exact moment when their heart stops. You know, who is your enemy compared to the one who juggles galaxies? When your refuge is the Father, your enemies are no threat at all. But also because Jesus is your brother, you take refuge in the king of the world. The God-man is your brother. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the high priest who paid for your sins, who brings you to the Father the Father has appointed all judgment to, to Jesus, his anointed servant. Do you think you'd be secure right now if Donald Trump was your brother and he was always texting you every day for advice? You'd probably think, hey, you know, I've got, I've got, I've got connections, right? Um, and, and so it's a similar thing, that close relationship. Um, obviously, Jesus doesn't ask us for advice, but we are in constant contact with him. The one who will judge the world is the one who loves you enough to die for you. He accepts you. He welcomes you at the price of his own blood. He hears every prayer. He forgives every true sin. He refutes every false accusation. And then third, the Holy Spirit seals you. You take refuge in the one who gives life to dead hearts. God the Spirit lives in you and seals you for the day you are resurrected with Christ. He is your refuge. He is sealing you now for eternal life. More than that, when you're, when you're in the grave, when you're in heaven with your, with your Father, he, will, he has promised to carry you on to the resurrection and give you new life. Spirit's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. He's the one who makes dead hearts come alive. God is the only refuge who can turn enemies into friends. Isaiah eleven six says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. I, I don't think God is only concerned with animals here. Uh, think about that, that lamb, Ananias, calling that wolf, Saul of Tarsus, brother Saul. You know, you, the, the lamb looks into the, the barbed mouth without fear, and calls the wolf brother. All over the Middle East, Christians who have been praying for refuge from, refuge from the police or refuge from ISIS regularly find those prayers answered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit blows wherever he wants. He doesn't worry about what's on the evening news. And 
Christians in hostile countries see men come to Christ who bear the guilt of immense bloodshed. And then lambs who've seen their loved ones slaughtered now get to worship with their forgiven devourers. That's, that's power. No other refuge can turn enemies into friends. In verses 3 through 5, then, um, we see that we must not expect rescue, though, if we're not seeking to really follow God. The psalm says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hand, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. As Philip mentioned last week, this is not about these prayers for God's wrath are not about settling our personal disputes. So if we actually have done what they're accusing us of, we need to repent to God, we need to repent to the person and, and see how we can make it right. In a sense, David is saying, I'm willing to take the consequences if I have done what they've said. And I think that, too, is an aspect of his trust in God. That we see, see also in David's life that people accusing him of things and, uh, and he doesn't let his his friends act. He doesn't let his friends get him back because he's like, what if it's from God? What, you know, what if he's got a point? Um, he, he's got that patience from God. He's seeking refuge in God. Um, as those who are children of the Father, brothers of Christ, who have the spirit of adoption, our goal should be to live such a life that if people want to accuse us, they've got to make up things to accuse us for. They're going to accuse us, and we want that to be a fiction when they do. In verses 6 through 9, the, uh, the focus kind of turns as David prays for God to come and judge the world. Verses 6 and 7, uh, David is looking forward to God ending all the injustice in the world. He says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. David is asking for God to gather all the nations together and judge them. Like us, he knows it's coming. And he wants it to be here quickly. When we, when we look at all the wrong in the world, we want judgment to arrive now. A day is coming when everything will be set right. We wonder, though, what is taking so long? We see genocide. We see our own nation supplying weapons to people that turn and use them to slaughter our brothers and sisters in Christ. We see children neglected, uh, a practice encouraged by our government, by Hollywood, and by intellectuals. We see uh, 60 million abortions in the U.S. and uh, over one and a half billion abortions in the world. So why not now? Why, what is, why is God taking so long? Why is he not here? So we long for that day, and, and God will give the wicked who have not repented what they deserve. Um, those who are proud will be ashamed forever. Those who are mighty will beg for mercy forever. And the oppressive rich will be left with nothing. And that's not even the best part. If you look at verse 8 and 9, the believer will pass through judgment and into life. It says, The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. David knows he's a sinner. 
And yet he does not say, judge them, not me. He's not looking for a way around judgment. He is trusting that God will bring him through safely. God promises to be David's God, and though David didn't understand it yet, he knew there had to be a solution for God's justice. I mean, we're talking about eternal judgment, infinite wrath, outer darkness. In ourselves, there's no escape. There's there's no exit for that. But praise be to God that Jesus came as our wrath remover to take God's anger for the sins we've committed so that God can forgive us without denying his perfect justice. Um, He can forgive us without making an escape for, for Satan and for those who refuse to believe. That's why David, a sinner, could say, Arise, O Lord, in your anger without a hint of fear. He's not afraid of God's anger because he knows he, he's a son of God. Imagine, some of you may be 19, but imagine you're a, a 19-year-old in college and you've come home from the summer and you've got to give your father the news that you've flunked out and the money they've spent has gone down the drain and so then your, your father, who's you know, red in the face, is grilling you and you start to have to admit to all the ways you ruined their tr- trust and you squandered what they gave you. Um, and it just unpleasant evening of admitting all the, the evil ways that you had broken your parents' heart. And so then you're, you're lying awake on the couch, staring in the darkness of the ceiling, thinking, man, I've never seen that old man so angry. Now imagine you hear a creak of the door and it it pops open and three men rush in and you say, Daddy, get up in your anger. Get your shotgun. Does it even pop into your head that he might turn that shotgun on you? I hope not. Uh, I don't think for most of us he would, right? it, It doesn't even occur to us because, you know, we know that we sin. We know that we need forgiveness. We know that we break God's trust. But... We're not afraid of his wrath, his judgment. We know it's not going to get turned on us. Um, And and so it's that that sort of thing. We've been adopted. And so we ask for judgment knowing that he's our father, that that he loves us and, and he's made a way for us. During the most difficult times especially, we are ready for God to bring everything to a conclusion. If we're in Christ, then the best is yet to come. On the other side of death, in the resurrection, there's absolutely no more pain, absolutely nothing left to be afraid of, life more alive than you knew it could be, a heart that is completely open to its creator and to its neighbor, selfishness banished like a bad dream, and a world that feels more like home than your happiest memory. The God-man is ruling the world, and he looks to that day with joy. He looks to coming in judgment so that he can begin that day, resurrect us and, and, and renew the world. On that day, Paul says, 
when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Jesus will come and judge. And that day is our hope because we get to be like Jesus. John says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him like he is. We don't know when that day is, however. If we lived a thousand years ago and were certain that he was coming in our lifetimes, we would have been wrong and we would have been disappointed. You know, what if if Jesus doesn't come back for 10,000 more years, then uh, we're just stuck with evil, right? There's nothing, nothing he can do, right? Well, I don't think that's the case. Uh, you know, if... I, I, and I hear that kind of tone from people if I say, you know, say confidently that Jesus Christ will end abortion. They're like, well, yeah, he'll come back sometime. Don't know when. And I want to say, no, I mean, Jesus Christ, unless he comes back very soon, will end abortion. He will do it. And probably sooner than we all think. So that brings us to the last point. And in verses 10 through 17, David acknowledges that he doesn't know when the final judgment is coming, but he tells us that justice is never far away. Look at verses 10 through 13. We see that God is angry today, ready to strike at any moment. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He is bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Do you think that you're mad at all the sin in the world? We're we're sinners, right? We, We hardly know what it's like to be mad at evil in the world. We don't know a percent, a single percent of the bad stuff in the world. And, and most of what the bad stuff we do know about, the kind that we participate in, um, we're not particularly offended by. God knows every sin, and he hates every sin with every ounce of who he is. God hears every Lonely throb of hunger of every starving soul like it was a shout in his ears. He knows every act of self-centeredness and apathy that led to that suffering. And he doesn't forget unless you come to Christ. God has no sin. Sin is absolutely repulsive to God. And I venture to say that you have, I have, never hated anything as much as God hates our lesser sins. For him, it's not a problem of the Holocaust. You know, why doesn't God act? Why does God let these things? It's, you know, everyday things that we do. Why, you know, why doesn't God act? And, and yet God is very patient, and we're glad because it allows for repentance. We're, so when we pray this psalm, we're praying for him to let loose his anger. We're not praying for him to get mad. We could not imagine his anger at sin. It says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. So, you know, you have that friend growing up who you're always afraid if they buy a knife because they want to wave it in your face or, or something like that. If I, if, I, if I had a bow and arrow drawn back and I said, hey, y'all like my bow and arrow, 
you know, you'd be kind of frightened by that. It says that God has bent his bow. It's not that he has to get angry. It's that he has to let go. He just has to release it into the world. He, he has to, he's got plenty of anger. That's not the problem. Uh, as God told Job, all God has to do is pour out the overflowings of his anger. We don't, so we don't have to wait for the end of the world because judgment is happening all the time. God is answering the cries of the oppressed every day. As Mary sang, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the rich with good things and the he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. I, I think she's saying that you know that's the kind of God she knows. He knows that she knows that he loves to do those sorts of things. I'm telling you that wars are won and lost. Nations rise and fall. People live and die at the will of Jesus Christ, the king of the world. He makes those decisions on behalf of his people who cry out to him. Of course, Jesus shows up at the end of history. But he comes in millions of small ways as he waits on that day. Whether or not he shows up for the, the last time to judge the world Within our lifetimes, we are to believe that he is always close when we call. We are to believe that, he, that, that he, we are always close to having to give an account to him. When James says, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand, I don't think he's relying on knowing the timing of Jesus' second coming. I think he's kind of using a broad category of God coming in justice. You know, there's so many ways that Jesus comes to help his people in the meantime. I know I've mentioned it before, but it's a pretty amazing thing uh, about the fall of the Soviet Union, which was probably the largest uh, revolution in the history of the world without a single shot fired. The Soviet Union was a scourge upon Christians wherever it was wherever it spread. In 1984, Open Doors Ministries organized Christians all over the world to pray around the clock that the Soviet Union should be opened, the word they used, to Christianity in a campaign they called Seven Years of Prayer for the Soviet Union. Soon after the campaign began, news that was coming out of Moscow started to use that very word in Russian, uh, openness. In, in 1991, seven years after the prayer campaign began, the Soviet Union collapsed. And that was Jesus. He came for his people. He showed up in judgment. More locally, you may know the story of the abortion clinic that used to be in Chattanooga. I think that maybe more clearly illustrates Jesus showing up in judgment. So two years after Roe versus Wade... Uh, in 1975, the Chattanooga Women's Clinic was opened. Uh, that, if in case you don't know what that is, that's a place where, uh, with the government's consent, you can pay a hitman to murder your baby. And, and Christians strove valiantly for years to see it ended, as the Spirit led in all sorts of different ways. But, of course, the most important way was prayer. And around 1989, a group of men began praying in the parking lot every Sunday morning that God would either save or remove those who worked at the clinic. Now, if you're familiar with the Psalms, that prayer can easily be summarized by saying, God, destroy your enemies. According to my wife, 
and I couldn't verify this first point, that um, God soon answered that prayer with one of the people who worked there getting saved. Um, and, and so God's wrath was let down on that person in Christ. They died on the cross with Jesus. In 1991, so just two years later, the clinic's owner died of a fast-spreading cancer. In 1993, the clinic's co-owner also died of cancer. And so those two individuals, God's wrath was let out on them outside of Christ. And that's how uh, Chattanooga came to have an actual center that cares for women uh, where there was once a uh, house for murdering babies. We should expect God to work quickly. You know, even if he doesn't act as quickly as you would like, you should expect God to act soon. But even if you're disappointed with his patience, David gives us one more reason that, that, to know that God is not inactive against our, those who, uh, who try to harm us. Verses 14 through 17, we see that sin itself carries with it a little bit of God's justice. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to, to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. God's rules aren't arbitrary, and you can't violate God's law without harming yourself. There's always a little bit of God's wrath baked into sin. Verses 15 and 16, we're assured that um, if your oppressors are trying to kill you, um, that God has a sense of humor and of poetic justice. The guy who's trying to destroy you is going to fall into his own pit. His mischief is going to come back at him and crush him. You remember Haman, who uh, he built gallows in order to kill Mordecai in the book of Esther, and he set a day for all the Jews to be murdered, and then those gallows became the platform where he was killed, and on that day the Jews killed their enemies. See, God's tricky. He does this sort of thing all the time, and it all points to that, that great uh, act of deception where Satan thought he was defeating God's king on the cross, and then it was Satan instead who was defeated by Jesus. And the cross became the instrument of God drawing all men to himself. This is how God made the world. Don't be afraid of your enemy's schemes. They are forming weapons against you, but be certain of whom those weapons are really intended for. God will use them against them. Now, we've walked through Psalm 7, and I hope you've learned to take refuge from the accusations of your enemies by hiding in the justice of God. We have asked God to rescue us from slander. We've asked God to come and judge the world, and we have been assured that judgment is never really very far away. Now, the Psalms are not only meant to be dissected, but are meant to be sung and prayed, and I would encourage you to you know, before the hard times come, to you know, really learn well the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to 
Um, I just want to share with you a couple resources here. Um, this is the Psalm Project, which uh, I used their first volume because I was using Psalm 7, and it's uh, Psalm Project. You can search for it. Pretty good if you like 90s rock. Uh, I, they've probably changed a little over the years, but still, it's you know, excellent for meditating on Scripture, memorizing Scripture. That's a good one. The Psalm Project. I, I don't know if they got past Psalm 40, but they got a good ways in, so that's a lot of Scripture uh, meditation and memory. Here's one of my personal favorites. I don't know um, how you feel about African folk music, but um, sing psalms. It's the Psalm Project Africa. So uh, the other one's the, the Psalm Project, and, uh, and this one is the, the Psalm Project Africa. Um, Psalm Project Africa, and the other one was the Psalm Project. And then we use a lot of we use a lot of Sandra McCracken's music here, um, but she has an album of psalms. I don't know if, if it's good or not, but she's solid. She sings a lot of good music, so I would probably bet my money on it. Um, so I, I don't want to just, you know, s- d- dissect the psalm. I, wanna, I really want to use it. I want to pray it, and, and that's what it's for. So... There's, a, there's one young, well, she's not young. She's quite a bit older than me, actually. Well, there's a woman in Pakistan that you've probably heard of, uh, Azia Bibi. And, um, and she got in a dispute in Pakistan. So I thought we could, um, we could close by praying for her using Psalm 7. In 2009, she got in a dispute with some Muslim women, and um, they, they thought that she was too filthy as a Christian to share a cup with her. And she told the women, out of love, I'm certain, that Jesus had died on the cross for, for sins, and what had Muhammad ever done for them? Then she said that Jesus is alive and Muhammad is dead, and that Jesus is the true prophet of God, but Muhammad is not true. The women attacked her and beat her, and then the intent of her town, which was all but a few of the families were Muslim, 1,500 families. Their intention was to beat her until her face was black and then parade her on a donkey. And the uh, police came in and arrested her, I think largely for her own protection. And she's, she's been still in jail today. That was in 2009. Uh, the pressure from the public, they brought blasphemy charges against her. They were going to, intending on putting her to death. Uh, the, the mayor of Punjab publicly stated that they were misusing the blasphemy laws against Ajay Bibi, and then he was very quickly killed by his bodyguard. So the case has gone back and forth ever since 2009, been delayed as uh, her family wants Pakistan Supreme Court to act quickly. Um, There's been some judges on the Supreme Court who have taken themselves off the trial I assume for fear, and so, but her her family wants them to act quickly before public pressure wins out and she's put to death. So, we're going to pray for her using Psalm seven. Let's pray. O Lord, my God, in you do we take refuge. Save Aja Bibi from her millions of pursuers and deliver her. 
Lest like a lion they tear her soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if we have done this, if there is wrong in our hands, if we have blasphemed you, the only true God, let the enemy pursue our souls and overtake us, and let them trample our lives to the ground and lay our glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of Ozzie's enemies. Awake for her. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge us, O Lord, according to your righteousness, to our righteousness, and according to the integrity that is in us. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. May you establish Asia. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. Our sister's shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God, you are a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If Ozzie's accusers do not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for them his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. The ones who really blaspheme are those who accuse Ozzie. They make a pit, digging it out, and fall in the hole that they have made. Their mischief returns upon their own heads, and on their own skulls their charges descend. We will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and we will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Amen.